Assalamualaikum everybody. <laughs> this is Henry. I want to introduce our, our mascot. Is this camera working on? Yes. Okay. So Henry has become um, a permanent Halakha member. And so I wanted to introduce you. Henry today is without um, his typical uh, wardrobe. He usually has a very special costume. He has a very extensive wardrobe, much better than mine. Um, he has these amazing hats. Um, so, you know, as you know, of course, we love dogs and we are trying to also elevate the position of dogs. So I just wanted to let you know that we've invited a representative of the dog population <laughs> to join us from here on in. So he's very quiet. He's very well behaved. He's kind of old, so he's very wise, kind of like a dog version of Yoda. So, anyway, I say a prayer for him because he's very special. Okay. Thank you. So, Assalamu alaikum everyone, and welcome to our second Project Illumin Halakha. It's really um, so, I can't even express like how happy I am that now we get together, well, this, this week, um, or <laughs> this last week, once a week for a Halakha. I think next week we're going to start ramping things up and meeting twice a week. So, if you can join us, um, absolutely do, because... Um, you know that these, these sessions are incredible. It's going to start getting very intense, but um, I feel like every time we go through one of these sessions, it's extremely powerful and liberating. <clears throat> and just very quickly, I wanted to tell a quick story. Um, this past week, as often happens to converts, I'm sure converts will share this with me, um, I got lectured because I'm a convert. You know, I don't look like I'm a Muslim. I don't look like I've spent the last 25 years or more studying the Quran. Um, you know, I don't look like I know more than probably how to do wudu. So when I try to raise serious issues with heritage Muslims, um, I very quickly get that sense when someone is looking down their nose at me and saying, well, you know, this is what we Muslims do. And we Muslims is not directed at me as inclusivity, but we heritage Muslims do this, and you as a convert obviously are not aware of what we do. Now this has happened so many times, um, and it, you know, it gets very irritating, of course, um, especially when you are trying to manage um, a nonprofit, you know, educational institute focused on ethics and knowledge and critical thinking. Um, and when a heritage Muslim tries to tell you that, you know, in many unspoken ways that you obviously don't know the tradition. So I wanted to tell a story. I mean, basically, I know many of you may have heard my conversion story, but you know, when I was um, when I converted, I converted through books, and I didn't meet many Muslims before I um, became a Muslim. And I spent my first year. I mean, I went to my mosque for, to a mosque for the first time after my conversion, and what I was exposed to was really different than what I was expecting. I'm sure every convert knows this story. And um, it was a very um, intellectually um, stagnating experience, to say the least. And when I met the professor, it was like my world completely changed. And I started hearing things that I had never heard anywhere before. But that reminded me of the feeling that I had when I was reading books. And it was a feeling of liberation and just open-mindedness and free thinking and just, you know, an incredible excitement and passion that this is the meaning that I had been searching for. 
And so, you know, when you're married to a scholar, you hear all kinds of things and you learn all kinds of things, just from the living example to things that maybe, you know, he's reading in books or, you know, thinking about for his scholarship. You know that what you're getting exposed to is a very different experience than the vast majority, vast majority of Muslims. You know, whether heritage or convert, you just don't hear these things. And that's what also sparked my passion very early on, is that this is so liberating for me, and I just want to share it with everybody in the world. And that's why people who know me know that I am like, you know, so passionate about what we do here, because I've experienced it, and I've, you know, felt the liberation and the empowerment. Um, but it was a very lonely journey, because it's, it was, you know, oftentimes just a handful of people or fewer than that. Um, but my dream was always to get to where we are today, which is to have an institute um, and a group of students and a community of people who shared this, you know, this desire for liberation, desire for knowledge, and desire for empowerment. And that's why I get so excited. You know, I mean, we've only been together as a community here working on Project Illumin for, you know, a week or two. I mean, it feels like we've been together for much longer than that. But what's really exciting and amazing is I'm here with people who appreciate knowledge and are not afraid of knowledge or afraid of the liberation that comes with knowledge, nor afraid of the responsibility that comes with knowledge. And when I deal with heritage Muslims who, the minute you challenge what they understand as, as Islam, they react sometimes very viciously. And, you know, very condescendingly. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out why that is. And I think that there is a certain entitlement that heritage Muslims often feel. This is my, my tradition. I know it's the right message. And that's the end of story. They don't need to do any work. They don't have to actually learn anything. And when they hear something different than what they heard from their parents or what they heard at the mosque, they become very indignant. And they certainly don't want a convert to come tell them that they're wrong about something that, you know, is clearly um, more, I mean, I don't want to be impolite, but I, you know, I am upset when, you know, when you say something to someone that obviously is not only rational and truthful and, you know, touches your heart and your soul, that they actually react with fear. So, you know, it takes courage to to challenge the things that you might have grown up with that don't feel um, familiar to you, um, that might make you feel like you don't know as much as you think you do, or that you're maybe not as confident as you're in your faith as you should be. Um, but that's, I think, also why it's very beautiful to be with this community here because, I mean, we all know there are not that many people that are, are you know, following us on this path. It's a difficult path. And that's also why several times, or actually frequently, we get accused of being a cult. You know, this, this word cult has now become triggering for a lot of us because, you know, we are here to serve God and elevate our, our level of knowledge and our commitment. And, I mean, these are the things, you know, and, and these, the people here, you know, we were like joking that we're a very bad cult because we actually provide scholarship and we put everything we do online so it's all public and, you know, we speak out, you know, speak truth to power. Um, and, you know, we do all kinds of things that other Muslim organizations don't feel comfortable doing, quite frankly, because they don't have the courage to do it. And, you know, and I just get so tired of being 
talked down to by heritage Muslims. So I have a couple of, I guess, things that I want to say because I also deal with converts who are struggling, new converts that are struggling to find their way in this heritage Muslim, you know, context. And I would say I challenge, first of all, I challenge the heritage Muslims to find some courage. You know, let go of your beliefs, throw everything aside and rebuild. I invite you to be a convert because I honestly believe that if you are going to find truth and beauty, you have to start this journey from the beginning. And you should consider yourself a convert. And that means you have humility, you don't know anything, you're not afraid, and you're willing to question, and that you don't settle for an answer that doesn't speak to your brain and your heart and your soul. That should be, you know, God gave you the tools you need. So don't worry about the heritage Muslims. Don't worry about what they're telling you about, oh, you have to wear hijab, you have to pick a medheb, you have to, have to, have to, have to, have to. I always tell people who reach out to me, start with the very basics, your relationship with God. Start with your heart, your soul, you know, your, what's beautiful, what speaks to you as a human being, what will speak to you and every other human being, Muslim or not. Start with that, start with your relationship and the rest when you have that base of, of knowledge, that foundation, that strength in God, then you can, you know, work your way through the other details and determine whether those details are important or not. So, courage and, you know, um, and I guess I want to close, I'm wearing um, one of the most precious gifts I've ever been given. And um, Rafida, hopefully, I don't know if you can see this. This is a um, Fabergé egg. Um, a little Fabergé egg. And this, I, you know, if, if you've been following what we've been doing or any of my talks, like a year or two ago, I spoke about how every single person is like, has their own individual like Fabergé egg. I was trying to come up with like a, a, you know, an analogy to a soul. Because I believe that God gives every soul, you know, a very unique, precious, fragile, beautiful, you know, soul, which is, you know, to me, like a Fabergé egg. And sometimes life makes, you know, life will come and damage your Fabergé egg. And that in order to rebuild it, you have to take this journey where you are reconnecting with God and you're, you're challenging um, the things that you may see in your world, you know, and oftentimes, unfortunately, other Muslims. Um, and rebuilding that relationship with God will come to, re, you know, to healing the, the breaks in your Fabergé egg so that hopefully you can come and find it again. So Rafida and, and I, um, you know, did some wonderful things together and, you know, prayed a lot together. And she gave me this to thank me for helping her to rebuild her Fabergé egg. Mm -hmm. So I just invite you all to focus on your Fabergé egg and your, you know, your relationship with God and just, you know, and have courage. So, um, and for converts, you know, when, when heritage Muslims like lecture you or make you try to make you feel small or try to make you feel like you don't know anything, you know, the irony is you know more because you've done more work oftentimes. You've done the work to overcome all of the obstacles, especially in this day and age, to become Muslim. And that takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of questioning. It takes a lot of hard work and a lot of sacrifice. And most people are not willing to do that. Most heritage Muslims are not willing to sacrifice the comforts that they know to re-question their religion and, you know, and develop that relationship with God. So kudos to those who are
courageous enough to do that because the the you know the payoff is unbelievable it's liberation it's empowerment it's you know it's a future with God that is very beautiful it's like a friendship with God and and a peace that we are all as human beings seeking that's I think ultimately what drives this whole thing is peace um, and I you know in my 25 years as Muslim as a Muslim and following this path I, I believe I'm living testament of the power of this journey and it's worth it so I encourage you um, join me in being a convert so that's it and with that, welcome to Project Illumin number two. <laughs> okay, inshallah, today we will do Surah Al-Furqan. Um, on Tuesday, inshallah, we are going to take uh, one of the earliest uh, surahs, short surah, Al-Muzammil, Surah Al-Muzammil. Uh, there is a possibility, if uh, we are doing well time-wise, that I might do Al-Muzammil and Al-Muddathir. But um, Al-Muddathir, let's leave it up in the air a bit. I might, we might get to it, we might not. But inshallah, definitely, we will try to do Muzammal on Tuesday. Now, um, as these halakhas, inshallah, ramp up, and as we're covering uh, soar, I can't underscore enough the importance of going back and re-studying uh, the earlier halakhas. The Qur'an was revealed over 20 years and the lessons of the Qur'an are cumulative and as we'll talk about the very um, name Qur'an, the very signifier Qur'an means something that completes one, that completes each other. It is each part completes the other part. Um, so it's all interconnected. And what I don't want to happen is that you would just receive the message of Isura but fail to integrate the entire corpus. So again, go back and re-study the earlier sword that we covered, reflect on the lessons, reflect on how the other sword connect with the surah that we are talking about. Um, if you do that systematically and consistently enough and you persevere, then inshallah your entire character becomes the character of the Quran, Qunqu Quran. And, and that is the ultimate goal.
Okay. So, Surah Al-Furqan, is revealed in the Mecca era and it is the stage in Mecca, in the Mecca period after the immigration to Ethiopia, to Abyssinia, but before the Isra and Maraj. So, it comes at a point where already many of the anchoring sore have been revealed. Uh, the sore that anchors the moral character of Muslims, enough of them have been revealed to enable a group of Muslims to migrate to Abyssinia for refuge um, and have an, an, an intact Islam, a definable Islam, but it is also before the great test and challenge of an Isra wal Maraj, and we've talked in the past about what happens in an Isra wal Maraj, and inshallah we'll talk more about it. In order of revelation, most scholars say it came, it was revealed right after Surah Yasin, uh, but before Surah Fatr. Um, so that, if it's right after Surah Yasin, then that means that it was revealed after Qaf, it was revealed after Surah Qamar, it was revealed after Surah Saad, uh, it was revealed after Al-A'raf, it was revealed after Al-Jinn. Um, but it also comes then before formidable surah like uh, Taha, Maryam, Shara, Innaml, Qasas, um, Surat Yusuf, Surat Al An'am, and, and so on and so forth. In order, most commentators put it around somewhere around the early 40s, so Surah number 40, 41, 42, something like that. And it is remarkable for reasons that inshallah will become apparent. The style and the method of the surah deserve serious pause and serious reflection. Because it starts out alerting us to a foundational and unequivocal truth 
can call it an anchoring truth, a, a truth upon which you can build your entire life, or you must build your entire life. You should build your entire life. And then moves on to addressing challenges confronting the Prophet Muhammad, but challenges of a particular type. And these are what the the um, character assassinations directed at the Prophet by his critics in Mecca. And then it takes us in that narrative where it talks about what the Prophet is confronting in Mecca. And again, if you're not reflecting and 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 uh, uh, studying the surah carefully you might think well you know yeah th these are these are just the, the the usual rebuttals of um, that we find frequently in the Quran and there is nothing more to it but as we'll see inshallah there is much more to it there, there's a lot to it in the way that Surah Al-Furqan does this and also in why it is known as Surat al-Furqan. And then after addressing these accusations, it provides a very sweet and tender consolation to the Prophet Muhammad. It's as if in, in, in some of the most sweet and tender verses ever to um, console the Prophet and to comfort the Prophet. And then it moves on to deliver a core message to Muslims themselves about their own moral character. So obviously, the question that comes to mind is, okay, well, how does it all fit together? How does the penultimate declaration at the beginning, the penultimate declaration fit with the Consolations to the Prophet Muhammad, and how does that get tied into what it says about what a Muslim character should be or ought to be? So, a remarkable opening that inevitably is lost in translation. Tabaraka alladhi nazzal al-furqan ala abdihi liyakuna lil'alameena nazira. Translation is Tabarak, 
Blessed is he who sent down the Qurfurqan, the criterion, to Muhammad, his prophet, so that he may be in Azir or a warner to humankind. The, the remarkable expression here is Tabarak. Because Tabarak is uh, from Tafa'al or Tafa'al, the verb form. And Baraka is a designation for everything through sharaf wa fadila, everything of great honor and virtue. In linguistically, if you say tabarakt, I am wishing you everything of great virtue and great honor. But when you say tabarak, the, the verb form is as if to wake you up, as they said, al-maqsood al-ta'lim wal-iqaz, wal-iqaz, as if to instruct you but wake you up, like you're alerting to someone and saying, hey, pay attention. Pay attention to what? Pay attention to that who has sent the Furqan, which we'll talk about in a second, and that who has sent the Furqan is the most honored, the most virtuous. Every good moral virtue or ethic you can think of belongs to that who sent the Furqan. For among the, the theological discussions and debates between the Mu'tazila and um, the Ash'ariya, but, uh, but more specifically the Matariya, who the Mu'tazila often put a great deal of emphasis on that, the Fa'ul, that Tabarak. Because Allah invokes it by its very nature of things all virtues and all honor as belonging to the divine. Now, of course, for the Mu'tazila, the question becomes, well, if Allah invokes that, then is it known to us by nature? Is it known to us by our very nature? We would know what virtue is. We would know what honor is. We would know what fadila is. It, of course, these a lot of these debate, unfor debates, unfortunately, have been forgotten in the modern age. But it was it gives you a sense of how often we Grace was talking about heritage Muslims. Heritage Muslims don't pause at the word tabarak anymore. It doesn't invoke much in them. You know, for instance, if someone gets married, we say in Arabic, Mabruk, you know, blessed. Or someone has a child, we say Mabruk, 
blessed. But the invocation, the, 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 the linguistics themselves, often ignore the, the, the um, grandeur of the term that we are invoking. So you're not just saying blessed, you are also saying may that person or may that event be the cause for all virtue and honor and goodness. Now, of course, you know, in, in modern culture, heritage Muslims, as Grace put it, um, you know, it's, you could say mabruk to someone as you're, you're engaged in all type of haram. Or you could say mabruk to someone as you are a despicable thief and a murderer and a killer and, you know, it, it just means nothing anymore. But when you are dealing with the Qur'an, orient, anchor your relationship with the Qur'an on a blank page from the start again. And know that when Allah says, Tabarak, Allah is grabbing your attention and saying, this God is a God that invokes, God that encompasses, God that represents, that embodies all virtue and all goodness. Allazi nazzala Qur'an. We won't posit the grammar point, why not anzala Qur'an instead of nazzala Qur'an. I'm gonna, I, 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 I promise that I will resist the temptation to. So, Allazi nazzala Qur'an, sorry, nazzala al-Furqan. Now, al-Furqan. We know that Allah uses the word Furqan in, in context to refer to the Qur'an itself, but also in other contexts to refer to revelation that was sent to, for instance, Moses. Uh, as when Allah says that Allah sent the Furqan to Moses. Um, Furqan means something something that creates the criterion, the distinction for something else. And in this context, Furqan means that that creates the criterion, the distinction between what is good and what is bad. Now notice the special relationship between the word Tabarak and the word Furqan. Tabarak invokes all honor and all virtue. And Furqan tells you that this book is distinct, it distinguishes and sets the criterion by extension to for all honor and all virtue. To put it simply, it's a moral book. It's a book that is anchored in moral criterion. 
there are debates that I don't need to detain us right now as to is Furqan when used to refer to the Quran does it refer to exactly the same thing as the Quran so I, I, is this a, a, a synonym synonym for, for, for the Quran uh, or does it refer to to something else that includes the Quran. So is the Quran just a broader term and the Furqan for something more specific within the Quran? Um, that debate, inshallah, we, we, we can get to in, in another context. But we, let's just say that when Allah... For, for our, at this stage, let's just say that when Allah uses Furqan to refer to the Qur'an, He's using a descriptive term to explain to you what the Qur'an is. The Qur'an itself, as a word, linguistically, the word Qur'an, is not just a reading, but it comes from, it originates from the expression Qurana, to connect something to something else, to associate something with something else. So, when this revelation is referred to as the Quran, that it is a revelation that is, its parts are connected to its other parts for a sum total. The Furqan refers to the function of the revelation, while the Quran refers to the nature of the revelation. Some have said that the very fact that it's referred to as Quran tells you that it, it, the meaning complements each other and completes each other, that it is a, it, that you can't take one part and pluck it out of its context. That, but rather it must be taken as an interconnected whole. Okay. So, Tabaraka al-Ladhi nadzal al-Furqana ala abdi liyakuna al-alameena nazira. The penultimate statement grabs your attention and says, this is the God of virtue, the God of everything honorable, who has sent a criterion to Ala Abdi, Abdi refers to Muhammad so that it will serve as a warning. It will serve as notice, as receiving notice. الذي له ملك السماوات والأرض ولم يتخذ ولدا ولم يكن له شريك في الملك وخلق كل شيء فقدره تقديرا. So then it goes on immediately to tell you that the Lord of all ملك السماوات والأرض 
the Lord of the heavens and the earth, who has no partners, had begotten no child. Interestingly, in, in the theological debates, that uh, uh, why does Allah mention the issue of did not beget a child after Tabarak? Tabarak, as we said, is the most honorable, the most virtuous, the most moral. There is an interesting point that is d debated in Kalam, um, in uh, special philosophical works. If you have, if you beget a child, that child is either lesser than you or more than you. By its nature, if you have a child, you cannot be the ultimate in barakah. You cannot say tabaraktu as the ultimate in barakah because your child can never be your equal. Theologically in Christianity, the child is supposed to be the equal of the father. Well, it's debated in Christianity. I mean, there's some, depending on what sect you follow. But for Muslims, you read these long philosophical discussions about the very act of having a child would is a diminution of the divine. An interesting point, but of course, in this context, it's a clear statement directed at Arab Christians um, and also the various um, belief systems of the people of Mecca which sometimes attributed to God daughters or sometimes attributed uh, representatives to God, sometimes attributed interceders for God. The, the normal uh, system of belief of polytheists, uh, which often had a very complicated mythology of many gods and major gods and so on. But for the early Quran, as the Quran consistently does in Mecca, it is insistent that this God, unlike the old God of the Old Testament, who often engages in complicated dynamics with the Israelites, sometimes the prophets of the Israelites seem to order that God around and seem to wrestle with God and seem to have conflicts where they get mad at God and God gets mad at them. Or in Christianity, a God who begets a son, or in polytheism where a God is, is part of a complicated narrative of uh, equals or semi-equals, uh, the anchoring point and so those who say that Islam is really the only religious statement of pure monotheism, I think that there's a lot of truth to that. And I think actually it's true. Monotheism doesn't really exist in Judaism or Christianity in its pure and adulterated form. Monotheism really only exists in Islam in its pure and adulterated form.
it just is. I mean, whether then you want to believe in this monotheism or not, but Islam's monotheism troubled the Jews of at the time of Muhammad because it rejected all the mythologies of the Old Testament, which talked about God as adopting a a um, a complex dynamic of interactive dynamic with a chosen people, where you know God gets angry, God gets happy, God wrestles, God fights, God punishes in 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 a in in a near the a way where God is equal to the chosen people. And with Christianity, of course, we need not say more, but that anchoring point of pure monotheism. No, this is no equals. This is something beyond your mythologies, beyond your stories, beyond your histories, beyond your very empirical logic, beyond your material logic of beginning and end, beyond all of that. It is the Lord of all, the maker of all, the beginning of all, the end of all, and that ultimately leads then Muslim many Muslim theologians to say, well, God is the only lasting reality, an only permanent reality. Everything else is but an illusion. The only thing I'll say about this is that, let's see the, the translation. The translation uh, says, um, the I have says, um, and created everything and had measured it as exactly according to its due measurements. Yeah, that the critical point here is that for a lot of the Meccans at the time of the Prophet, there was a belief that there, there is a certain whimsicalness to fate, and that while some Meccans believed in a god, but they believed that this god was not an engaged god, and therefore a lot of the events that, tra that take part in the world, God is not involved with. In other words, God sits back and says, okay, you know, I've created you, I've done my job. Um, God might intervene if God is called upon because of the intercession of a demigod, but as a rule, what happens in the world is not divinely inspired, ordained, or engineered. So in pre-Islamic poetry, you find a lot of references, a lot of references about how haphazard and whimsical history is, and how haphazard and whimsical death is, and all types of things, death, love, um, it, it, they are as mere accents unfolding according to whatever people do or not do, and sometimes according to what, not just human beings, but what supernatural beings want, like jinn and the intervention of jinn. 
But fundamentally, it's a whimsical world. And we often, especially the, those who are raised as Muslim, they don't realize that the Quran was leading a moral battle to tell human beings, don't think that your this life has no meaning. It has a meaning. But the meaning comes only from the divine. Yes, it becomes meaningless if you take the divine out. But once you put the divine in, it has a meaning. And nothing just transpires without God's knowledge. And in full view of God. There is a very fascinating debate that you find often around Surah Al-Furqan, but also other, of course, other Surah, but um, in the Kalam works, especially the debates between the Mu'tazila and Ash'ariya, the Mu'tazila said that Allah has a will for creation and has a purpose for creation. However, Allah does not create the actions of human beings. So, when if you decide to come to this halaqa, Allah didn't create that decision or that action. You did. For the Ash'aris, this represented a huge problem. Because they, they, for them, that clashed or was inconsistent with Qaddarahu Taqdira, that there is a will and a purpose in everything. And so the Ash'aris argued, no, in fact, Allah did create your actions. God creates the action, but then you acquire it. The Mu'tazila typically had the biggest problem with the creation of evil acts. So instead of coming to the Harakah, let's say you decide that you're going to go and kill someone. Did God, Allah create this act? For the Mu'tazila, it was unthinkable to say that Allah did. For the Ash'ariya, they said, well, Allah created the act in which you would kill someone, but also Allah created the act in which you don't kill someone. It is you who acquired the act. So it's, it, I mean, the, it's, every time you pass by Surah Al-Furqan, you can't help but remember these, these theological debates for people who um, took the message of the Quran in in to in all seriousness, so it was worth these extensive debates about well, what does that precisely mean? What what are the implications of this, and so on? Which I mean, again, it it rather contrasts to the way habit now shapes a lot of our relationship with the Quran, 
which is a point, by the way, we, in Surah Al-Furqan that we will come back to, because Surah Al-Furqan addresses this issue. So the beginning of Surah Al-Furqan gives you the impression that, okay, well, this Surah is going to be about Allah, Allah's power, and Allah's autonomy, Allah's lordship. This Surah is going to really be about what God is and the power and the absoluteness of the divine. But as we will see, it 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 surprises us. This is very So yet they have taken besides Allah gods. As I said, there was a complex system of either demigods, semi-gods, or equal gods. Gods who created nothing but are themselves created and possess neither hurt nor benefit for themselves and possess no power nor nor power of death nor of life and who don't raise the dead and so on. There's not going to say much about at this point. That the, the, the system of mythology which the Quran defied and negated and worked very hard to overcome um, was anchored precisely in the type of things that the ayah, uh, the, the verse 3 describes. Okay. So now, it sounds like yet another Quranic salvo about monotheism and supremacy of Allah. But then, Surah Al-Furqan moves from that opening statement to talking about what Muhammad specifically is confronting. وَقَالُوا أَسَاطِيرُ الْأَوَّلِينَ اكْتَتَبَهَا Sorry, first. وَقَالَ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا إِنَّ هَذَا إِلَّا إِفْكٌ افْتَرَاهُ وَأَعَانَهُ عَلَيْهِ قَوْمٌ آخَرُونَ فَقَدْ جَاءُوا ظُلْمًا وَزُورًا وَقَالُوا أَسَاطِيرُ الْأَوَّلِينَ اكْتَتَبَهَا فَهِيَا تُمْلَى عَلَيْهِ بُكْرَةً وَأَصِيلًا So, when it switches to what the Prophet Muhammad is confronting, it will, as we will see, it will address a whole series of accusations often preceded with waqalu, and they say, and what is the accusation here? The accusation is, well, they say that this Quran 
is the result or this Quran is something that Muhammad is copying and the, the, the image drawn here is, 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 is really fascinating, beautiful. That they knew that Muhammad is illiterate. So what is the claim here? More specifically, there were four slaves um, in Mecca. Um, um, I, I don't remember the, their name, but the, the one guy called Hawtab uh, ibn Adi or something like that. Hawtab ibn Azi or ibn Adi. There was uh, another fellow, Yassar uh, Abu Fuqayha. Um, I don't remember the, the there's I think a guy called Safwan and a guy called Jabr, I think. Anyway, there were four slaves who ethnically were Persian but had converted to Christianity. And those four convert to Islam around the time of the migration to Abyssinia, but of course they, they, they're slaves, so they don't get to migrate to Abyssinia. And the Meccans said, well, you know, these four slaves from Persia, who are Christian, they know Christianity, and they're the ones who are telling Muhammad about the stories of prior prophets that they read in the Old and New Testament. So the accusation is that they, and, and notice of the Quran, is that they meet Muhammad in secret, and it must be that they cheat. They, they tell Muhammad, okay, here are the stories that you can tell about Solomon, about Noah, about all the prophets. And then Muhammad listens to these, and that's how he composes the Quran. And it must be that they meet at secret and bukratan wa asila that they, they, they sit there and they, they engage in this, in this dictation, process of dictation to Muhammad, night and day. Now, you might be tempted to pass over this quickly and say, okay, okay, yeah, so an accusation, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, 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 but... but Pause, stop, and think. Four Persian converts to Christianity who were Christian for a while, and then they converted to Islam. Now, all of them, all these four are slaves. They have their own the Meccans go as far at one point that they actually bring the owners of these slaves and say, you know, make sure you lock them up. So all the these slaves that converted to Islam, the, the, these poor guys, it must be that you are telling Muhammad the stories. 
and their owners beat them or lock them up, they punish them on the basis that they are, it must be that they're telling Muhammad these stories that are mentioned in the Quran. And as we said, Al-Furqan is revealed after key surahs that talked about biblical prophets. But why pause? Because of the lesson that the Furqan is going to tell us. Think about the rationality of these accusations. Are they based on fact or gossip? The owners, the people who own the slaves, don't know for a fact that they snuck out to meet Muhammad. They know they're Muslim, but they know, don't know for a fact that they snuck out to meet Muhammad to tell him anything. But even more, these four slaves, these four poor slaves, themselves are not famous or known to be authorities on the Bible. Muhammad is a free man. Maybe if he wanted to cheat from someone, he could go and travel and, and meet some scholar of the Bible instead of these poor, poor slaves that converted to Islam. And if they are the ones who are telling Muhammad the stories that then you find in the Quran, then why did they convert to Islam? If they know that this is fraud, then why did they convert to Islam? And these poor slaves, after they're punished and imprisoned and locked up, did the revelation stop? It didn't stop. And there are material differences between the stories of the prophets as they occur in the Quran and the Bible. If you are copying from the Bible, there is no way that you would tell the story of Ayyub, Job, or Noah, or Isa, in fact, even Isa, or Moses, the way the Quran tells it. Because you just have to read it for yourself. The, the Quran has a very different narrative about these prophets than the Bible. So the Arabs, the Meccans, knew all of that. They knew all of that. So why are they then making this accusation? Surah Al-Furqan is alerting us to something that Muhammad is forced to confront. But all prophets were forced to confront. And here is the, the real thing. As we will see, inshallah. In fact, 
Surah Al-Furqan, the surah of the criterion, is telling us about something that all people who will walk this path and try to deliver the message of truth and virtue, Al-Haqq Wal-Adl, is going to confront. What is that thing that they're going to confront? Put it simply, gossip. Look at, and I'll, I'll show you how. So, now, these Meccans, they're talking about the Prophet. The Prophet is giving them a message. And the range of things they're saying are often contradictory and incoherent. So on the one hand, they're saying, well, you know, it, it must be that he's plagiarizing the stuff from a bunch of slaves. On the other hand, they're saying, well, it must be that he is enchanted, mashur. And mashur also could, could mean that he is possessed in, in the language. That there is, must be that there is a jinn inside of him then. Well, it must be that he is majnoon, he's insane. Well, it could be that he is a poet. Well, it could, why is it that he goes around eating food in the market like a regular human being? Oh, well, why don't we see an angel next to him? When you put the accusations together, what strikes you is you are just engaging in mud slinging. You're just looking for anything. You don't want the message, so you're assassinating the character of the messenger. And your accusations are often nonsensical and incoherent. So is he imaginoon, insane, or is he possessed? Or is he a poet? Or is he a, a, a literate, cop, a, a, an educated copyist who is stealing scholarship from scholarly sources? What precisely are you saying about this man? وَقَالُوا مَا لِهَذَا الرَّسُولِ يَأْكُلُ الطَّعَامِ وَيَمْشِي فِي الْأَسْوَاقِ لَوْلَا أُنْزِلَ عَلَيْهِ مَلَكٌ فَيَكُونَ مَعْهُ نَذِيرًا Why is this Prophet, this is now Ayah 7, why is this Prophet just like an average human being walking around in the markets and eating and, and, and buying and why does this Prophet work and make a living? Why didn't God make this prophet extremely rich and independent? Why does this prophet not have an angel next to him? But pause again. If this prophet was rich and didn't work, would they have believed them? If this prophet had an angel next to him, walking around, they would have said he's demonically possessed. Oh my God, he has a jinn attachment. 
Muhammad as the messenger is being accused of all types of things by people who don't want to deal with the substance of the message. What is the substance of the message? Tabarak al-lazhi quran What is the substance of the message? That one and only absolute God, the Lord of all, who is the epitome and embodiment of honor and virtue, and all that is blessed, who has sent this book as a guide and criterion. But you don't want that. What you're going to focus on is assassinating the character of the messenger. Does this remind you of anyone? Remarkable. Amazing, right? You're going to sit there and say, ah, well, why did he marry 11 wives? Well, why did this happen? Well, I'm having a crisis of faith because I heard that the prophet... You're avoiding the crux of the issue, the message. But aside from that, as if, like, telling something about the Islamophobes that are going to come, and Muslims themselves are Islamophobes. I mean, Muslims have become Islamophobes. But aside from that, it's going to deliver a very powerful moral message that no human being can live without. And I'll show you. وَقَالَ الظَّالِمُونَ إِن تَتَّبِعُونَ إِلَّا رَجُلًا مَسْحُورًا those who are inequitous and unjust say, oh, you're just following someone who is maskhoor. Maskhoor enchanted. Maskhoor could also mean, which is fascinating, Someone who enchants people because of their own personal charisma. Like a cult leader, maybe? <laughs> Amazing. وَقَالَ الظَّالِمُونَ إِن تَتَّبِعُونَ إِلَّا رَجُلًا مَسْحُورًا they say, no, 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 this is just an, an enchantment. It's not a message, it's not substance, it's not thought, it's not critical thinking. It's just something personal. There was a man called Al-Mudar bin Haris al-Abdali. And Nudar bin Harris was an interesting, I mean, interesting in a, in a, in a scholarly sense, interesting fellow. Um, um, he had traveled to Persia, and there is even uh, stories or, or reports that Nudar fancied himself a prophet to the Arabs, but it never worked for him. Um, 
and even at, at one point he, he said, well, maybe if I can be a prophet, maybe I can be a king of sorts, representing the Persian Empire in Arabia, but that didn't work for him, for him either. He went to Persia and asked um, the, um, the, 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 the emperor, the monarch of Persia at the time, if, if he would appoint him as a, as a royal representative for the Persian Empire in Arabia. And on Mother Bahadis, in the time that he was in Persia, he studied uh, the mythology of Rustum and uh, Esfandiyar and the old Persian mythology. And when the Quran is being revealed in Mecca and the Prophet Muhammad in the, in the Quranic revelation is talking about prior prophets, the Mother would say, oh, he's telling you what he's telling you is just mythology of the old. It's just a bunch of mythology. And in the same way that he has mythology, I have mythology. And I'll tell you stories that are even more fascinating than Muhammad. And he would tell the Arabs the stories of Rustum and Esfandiyar, uh, all taken from the mythologies of pre-Islamic Persia. And, I mean, it just gives you a, a, a picture of what the Prophet had to put up with. He, you know, people are saying, oh, you know, he's not that special. I, I, I can do better. I can, uh, he's, it's not, what he's offering you all oh, the Quran. Well, listen to my stories. Well, you know, I come to me. I can do a better job. Oh, he's crazy. Oh, he's insane. Oh, he's possessed. Oh, he's enchanted. Oh, he's just a, he's a plagiarizer. There's nothing more than that. All a bunch of accusations and character assassination that the Prophet ﷺ is consistently subjected to. Allah in sort of intervenes in the list of accusations in Ayah 9 and 10 and says, look, you know, it's often translated as they've given you examples. Um, nine. See how they coined some similitudes for you. Uh, so they have gone astray. Examples, similitudes. Uh, is an idiomatic expression that means look how they constructed arguments. It's not just giving you examples or points, similitudes, or it's it's exactly what happens in all the time in every age and every place. People construct arguments. So look how they presented, offered arguments. But in reality, these arguments go nowhere. These are arguments that are coined out of vanity for the purpose of undermining your legitimacy 
But the arguments themselves are going nowhere. And Allah reminds the Prophet wasalam, yeah, you know, your Lord knows what you have. And what you have, you struggle with the affairs of this life. You, may, you try to make a living and you try to preach a message. So you're, you're, you're on the one hand, you are living as, as a human being trying, trying to make ends meet. But on the other hand, you are also conveying this message. And if Allah would have willed, Allah could have made you extremely wealthy and extremely independent where you need no one. تَبَارَكَ الَّذِي إِذَا شَاءَ جَعَلَكَ خَيْرًا مِنْ ذَلِكَ جَنَّاتٍ تَجْرِي مِنْ تَحْتِهَا الْأَنْهَارِ وَيَجْعَلَ لَكَ قُصُورًا Allah could have made you dwell in palaces if Allah willed. Some Quranic commentators say that this is a promise that the Prophet will have palaces in the hereafter you know, okay, fine, take it or leave it. I'm, I'm not, but that's not the point. The point is, is Allah is stating the obvious. If I would have willed, I could have greatly improved the situation, the material situation of this man. But this is not my will. Because as we will see, it would completely defeat the purpose. It would completely undermine the very point of Tabarak. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. We're back. May Allah accept from us. Lord, this uh, it, it's remarkable when I, I, I just I, I pause for a second because it, when I think a year ago or, or a bit more when we thought of the idea of, of actually going through the entire Quran and we're here now. And I pray to Allah that people take this commentary, this tafsir, this ishtihad, um, seriously. at least for for the life of someone who has come to the conviction that without the Quran, my entire life would be meaningless. I don't know 
any reason for my existence without the Quran. And it, uh, it's remarkable when I find uh, people who could have had the opportunity to make their, this book their companion, their love, their very soul, go through their entire life, maybe even praying and fasting and doing whatever, but if anything, this journey with the Quran, inshallah, as we will see, it brings the Quran to your lives as a personal revelation. May Allah accept, after I am gone, may Allah accept this ishtihad. And may Allah enable us to wither away the challenges so we can get through the Quran. I know that whenever one undertakes something blessed like this, there will be many challenges and many trials and many tribulations. And I just pray to Allah that I persevere and that Allah grants us the health and the ability to complete this project. And for all of you that, that have an opportunity to hear this tafsir, Um, receive it as something blessed and I really pray that you communicate it and that it becomes uh, that Muslims rediscover their, their book okay So then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, after going, telling us some of the gossip that is going on directed at the Prophet wasalam, as the Quran classically does, typically does, as revealed by the dynamics of Surah Al-Fatiha itself, takes us to the consequences. So those who are insistent on being frivolous, they avoid the Furqan, they avoid that book that is the criterion between light and darkness, between truth and falsity, that don't, including, note here, including how the Quran, those who insist, as we will see in other surah, those who insist, and especially in, in later surah, 
those who insist on the mythology that, oh, Allah favors a race, and Allah created a tribe and a race to be chosen and to be given a, um, a, a secret destiny and a promised land over the rights of others, that Allah plays like a, a favorites in a, in, a, in, a, in a sports game. Or those who have turned the narrative of the divine into some mythology of sacrifice in which to pro prompt their own egos. Well, you know, he died for me, he suffered for me, he loves me, so I'm okay because he did all of that for me. And regardless of my sins, regardless of my faults, I'm engaged in this mythology of a love story, and that's the end of it. And then those who say, as the Meccans believed, that whatever good we do, we reap the benefit on this earth. Whatever evil we do, we reap the benefit on this earth. There, there is no accountability beyond this earth. Even if there is a God, it's all in the here and now. This world is the beginning and the end. For all of those people, the Quran comes and says, you know, notice that you might not take these things very seriously. But God takes it very seriously. And the consequences are very serious. And here the image that in verse 12 is drawn is, is, a, is a rather scary one. That this hell or Jahannam that I'm looking at the translation to see if it caught it or not, but that if Jehannam itself sees them from a far place, it rages and roars. Now, pause here for a second, because Muslim theologians, remember in, in our past halakha when we talked about the nature of Jehannam, several theologians noticed, well, this is not like any hellfire. Is this a hellfire that is a living being that rages and roars? Because that implies that it is, it, 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 it has an angst, that it is actually sort of a living thing. And so, those who said, well, the nature of Jahannam is something that is not part of our reality. It is a punishment. Often cite verses like this in Surah Al-Furqan and others that import to Jahannam um, qualities of consciousness, as if Jahannam is a conscious thing. But the image 
is that people are gathered at the end, in the hereafter. And they are crowded in, in places that are increasingly narrow. So as crowds, they start getting on each other's nerves. But they are living in absolute terror as they are about to confront their fate. And what they're heading to is something very scary that completely overcomes their senses, their ears and their eyes. They, they know they're going to it. And at that point, when we say, دَعُوا هُنَالِكَ ثُبُورًا means, this is a, um, uh, again, an expression that you find in pre-Islamic pre poetry. When you say, I wish I was dead, that's a dua al thubur That when you you reach a point of of just absolute despair, and you say, "My Lord, oh God, I wish I was dead." So you know, most typically, if a mother loses her child, she would engage in you know wailing, and that's that's dua al thubur So at this point, these people are got. Wish we were dead, and Allah comments on this by saying, by saying, Your fate is sealed. So you're not just going to wish you're dead once, you're going to wish that you're dead many, many times. And then the, the sort of a, a this reminder when Allah says, well, you know, think about it. Think about where you're going to be. Is this better? Or is it because Allah knows that at this point, your reaction to this is going to say, oh, this is awful. My God, this is horrible. Why is Allah going to do this to me? So Allah answers you and says, hey, is this better? Or the Jannah? Just think. Well, if this horrifies you, it's your choice. Because instead of this, you could be in a very different situation, or you could do in life what sets you up in a very different situation, which is Jannah al Khund. Okay. Verse 17. Again, we, we, we become accustomed to the Qur'an and, 
and if you reintroduce the Quran, it will, it can reshape your life. So, at this point, when Allah says, okay, those who are doomed will be confronted with they will be confronted with what they've spent their life in a state of ibadah with so they, in what literally what they've worshipped other than Allah but as so many commentators noted well wait so they're going to go to hellfire well, let's say if you're worshipping an idol so you're going to go to hellfire with your idol or you worship a cow you're going to go to hellfire with, your, with the cow or you worship the sun are you going to go to hellfire with the sun or you worship buddha are you going to go to hellfire with buddha how does that make any sense? Especially that Allah then has the rhetorical question would say, so did you misguide these people? And that object answers and says, no God, we didn't misguide them. But in fact, they misguided themselves. So who is being sent to Jahannam with these people? The literalist, like Ibn Kathir, said, yes, yes, you know, you're going to, you go to hellfire carrying the idol that you worshipped. You go to hellfire carrying whatever you worship other than Allah to hell. But as the non-literalists, so many of the Mufassirun that said, well, but wait, okay, so that might say, but what if you're worshiping Buddha? Or what if you worship the sun? Or what if you worship... And here they said, it's a construct. It's not telling you that you are going to go to hellfire with your idol or with the sun or with a cow or with Buddha. You are going to go to hellfire with the self that ultimately ended up being the idol. With the nafs that is ultimately became your idol. You engage in acts of worship to other than the one and only because of your vanities and your weaknesses. So those, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to say this, but I have to. Those who worship Jesus, they, they wanted the, the, to, the, someone to, to, to stroke their ego with an unconditional love story. I suffer for your senses. I go to hell for your I, I die for your, for your sins. I suffer for your sins. I've sacrificed myself for your sins, so you're okay. It's an ego trip. It's not a'aqidah. It's an ego trip. 
Now that ego, you will be confronted with in the hereafter. And you will be confronted with the fact that what led your ego astray is that you took the blessings of Allah, the mata'ah, the mut'ah, for granted. You deemed yourself entitled to whatever you've been given. You've deemed yourself entitled to your mother, to your father, to your job, to your home, to your legacy, to your memory, to your, what, your body, whatever it is. You deemed yourself entitled. And because of that sense, egotistical sense of entitlement, you reached a point of Nasu Zikr, an amazing expression that. You forgot the remembrance of Allah, meaning the presence of Allah, the anchoring of Allah. When Allah says, I am with you wherever you are, well, you forgot that. You pretended that that doesn't exist. And by doing that, you became Qawman Bura means You've become a boor, it's like when we say ard boor, it's a, a land that cannot bring out, cannot produce any good. It's an arid land, ard boor. Or when you say, dar al bawar, as the Quran says, means homes that are uh, doomed, that are vacant and abandoned and destroyed. Al-Bawar is a state in which all good has gone. You've cast yourself into ruin. So when the Quran says, Nasu dhikr it's as if when Allah is taken away from your equation, you no longer live with the remembrance. You lose all meaning and all goodness within you. In our language today, when I reflect on Nasu Zikr, I look at the state of humanity, the despair, the anxiety, the ruthlessness the lack of meaning. I look at the kids that commit suicide. I look at school shootings. I look at places like Las Vegas or areas in New York where just human beings are consumed and chewed up and spat out like they don't matter. I look at human trafficking and I always remember that's exactly when you have people that are living on Park Avenue in extreme wealth 
and just steps away. Hundreds of people are homeless, living with carts. That's Bawar. That's exactly Bawar. That's precisely what it is. Just absolute nonsensical lack of justice and ugliness. But it's all premised on Nasus Zikr. You've taken beauty out of your life. Because you've taken Allah out of your life. You've taken Tabarak, the Barakah, out of your life. You've insisted on being autonomous and singular, like Nietzsche's, Nietzsche's uh, paradigm. And look what you've become. You've lost humanity itself. So, there's an important point here that is often in this context. The Prophet ﷺ warned us that whoever you keep company with must be people that help you maintain the dhikr. You could keep company with people that are neutral. They neither help you with the dhikr nor help you forget the dhikr. But you could keep company with people who actively cause you to forget the dhikr. As the Prophet ﷺ said, they're like fire. If they don't burn you, they stain your clothes with soot. In the famous hadith. In Surah Al-Furqan, you are alerted to this issue because remember, Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala says, "وَمَنْ يَعْشُ عَنْ ذِكْرِنَا قَيَّدْنَا لَهُ شَيْطَانٍ." That whoever lives without our zikr, who becomes your companion? A demon. Now, I know. In our material, scientific world, a lot of people say, really? We live with a demon? And, you know, take it from, and, I mean, subhanAllah, I'm, I'm, for whatever it's worth, I'm telling you, I am telling you, the only thing that saves you from the, the, the accompaniment being accompanied by demons is dhikrullah. I am telling you, you want to believe me, believe me. You don't want to believe me, don't. But demons are real. And yes, they live with you. They, 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 they accompany you in your beds, in your homes, in your bathrooms, in, in everything. The only thing that keeps them away are dhikr. Demons are as close to you as your shadows. And we'll talk about shadows in Surah Al-Furqan because it mentions that. 
You know, it's really interesting because, and again, I know that a law professor shouldn't be saying things like that, but I'm going to say it because I don't, you know, I'm, I always think I'm, I'm getting ready to leave this world, inshallah. And, and you have to say the truth. It's just, there's no space. You know, all these modern things, we, you know, we're inventing all these equipment to, to capture voice phenomena, to capture shadows, to film in spectrums of light that the eyes don't see, all these ghost shows that, you know, capture things. And they don't realize what they're capturing are demons. So many demons that accompany human beings and know everything about them. And after human beings die, they're around to speak in their voice, to tell you the information that they knew. But they don't, these equipment might capture things, and they do capture things. I mean, that, that, that's not all made up. Some percent of it is actually real. They do capture things, but they don't understand what they capture. They think they're capturing the, 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 the ghost of someone who's dead. And so, you know, and they have these, you know, it's very fascinating. They have, you know, these equipment that capture electromagnetic or whatever and that light up when someone interrupts the energy field and they're talking to someone. You know, can you come close to the machine where if you're here and have it light up and then it lights up and they... And they're like, oh my God, look, you know, lights up, David, I don't know, whatever the person they're looking for, is here and they're talking to us. No, no, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're doing. The dead are not talking to you. But demons are talking to you. And you're playing with fire and you don't know what you're playing with. But, you know, human beings, what, what can you do? Human beings are human beings. They, they, they love to believe that guardian angels are protecting them and that their dead mother and father is looking after them. And, you know, and most of the time it's not their mother and father. Most of the time, and it's not their guardian angels, demons. But, you know, in the same way that no one that claims to have reincarnation, you know, all, everyone who say, claims the story of reincarnation says, I used to be something heroic, something good. Like, I used to be a fighter pilot, or I used to be an officer, or I used to be Abraham Lincoln. And no one says, I used to be a homeless person living in the street. I used to be a, a loser in life, you know, just accomplished nothing. Human beings. Al-Furqan. Al-Furqan. Al-Furqan tells you Al-Furqan tells you the difference between reality and make-belief in the world we live in. Al-Furqan tells you the difference between the demonic and the angelic. Al-Furqan tells you the difference between what is real truth and what we construct and live in as make-belief truth. Okay. My, my point is don't be among those who are nestled zikr. Don't 
Don't be among those who are nasus dhikr. Don't be qawman bura. Don't be boor. Vacant and vacuous and not good. فَقَدْ كَذَّبُوكُمْ بِمَا تَقُولُونَ فَمَا تَسْتَطِيعُونَ صَرْفًا وَلَا نَصْرًا وَمَنْ يَظْلِمْ مِنْكُمْ نُذِقْهُ عَذَابًا كَبِيرًا So 19 They, the false gods, will belie you regarding what you say that then you can neither avert nor get help. And whoever among you does wrong, we shall make him taste a great torment. Translation is not particularly good, but anyway. So when you are confronted with the idols of your life, you will see their falsity. And at that point, there's no recourse. It's the truth. It's the unadulterated, real truth, with all its beauty and it's all its ugliness. Now, minkum kabira. Here, there, there was a, a discussion you find in the theological works because Surah Al-Furqan is among the earlier surah, and the discussion or the debate focused on that expression, man yazlim minkum. So, that man yazlim means whoever commits an injustice will be confronted with torment. Well, what is the injustice that is it that it is talking about? So, for instance, the Khawarij said, كل ظالم هو في هذا الوعيد that this includes any form of injustice it's not just those who are polytheists and it's not just those who rejected the, the monotheism of Muhammad and it is not just those who but any unjust human being is addressed by this wa'id, by this promise. You are unjust, you will be punished. So, on this basis, the Khawarish said that any inju injustice will be, will be not dismissed, not forgiven, but paid in full in the hereafter. The Mu'tazila said this form of wa'id is only for kabair, meaning only it, it's, a, it's a, because it's a promise, I will punish injustice. So again, well, what injustice? The Khawarish said all injustice will be punished. The Mu'tazila said, no, it just, it means that only the major sins will be punished, but Allah might forgive the smaller sins. 
the Allah <laughs> might say, okay, let the smaller sins go, but the bigger sins I'm going to punish. The opponents of the Mu'tazila, which are often, you know, referred to as Ahlul Sunnah, said, no, this wa'id, this, this promise of punishment really addresses zulm al-kufr wa-shirk. That it only covers the injustice of shirk, of associating partners with Allah, and the injustice of kufr itself, of rejecting Allah altogether or uh, denying Allah Allah's rights. But other than that, it's up to Allah to whether to forgive or, or punish. What's interesting, of course, is what the, the, what the, the issue that is invoked here is what is the Quranic position on injustice? And does the Quran promise that all form of injustice are condemned and doomed to be punished? Or is it that the Quran is saying, well, you know, watch out for major sins, as the Mu'tazila said, because these will be definitely addressed, but minor sins, you know, they may be forgiven. Or is it, as Ahl Sunnah said, well, no, it is really just the very big sins, the very big sins of associating partners with Allah, or just a form of kufr, but other than that, Allah might forgive anything. These were debates at the genesis and beginning of Islam. What is our position vis-a-vis -vis these debates? My advice to you, the tradition is not there so that you become a blind imitator. You don't need to adopt the Khawarij or Mu'tazila or the Ahl-Sunnah position. But study the Qur'an and understand the message of the Qur'an. And for me, the message of the Qur'an is a message that promises justice in the hereafter. So here is the thing. Because as I said, you know, I, I am... This is the only chance that I have to tell you my journey with the Qur'an. And only Allah knows how long you'll be around. But if your sins are against Allah, it's up to Allah. Your infraction is against Allah. It's up to Allah. Whether to forgive or not. But God is very merciful and compassionate. If your sins are against other human beings, if your injustice is against other human beings or animals, or Allah's creation like the environment, these things have rights. 
And they will be, and you'll see, inshallah, in our journey with the Qur'an, why I believe that. These things have rights, and they will be your prosecutors in the hereafter. So watch out. Be very careful if you cause others to suffer. If you cause animals, animals can't forgive their rights. Meaning, if I cause a dog to suffer, the, the dog can't come in the hereafter and say, oh, it's okay, I forgive. A human can do that. So watch out. Because if you inflict suffering on a living thing, there is a bill to pay. And it's not likely that that bill will be forgiven. A human being in the hereafter has the ability to forgive. But what if the human being who you cause to suffer doesn't forgive? What now? Think about this very carefully. Because the way Muslims are raised these days is that, oh, you go to Hajj and Allah forgives all your sins. Really? Then you haven't studied the Quran. No, that's the corruptions of people who wanted injustice, who wanted to uphold injustice. If you hurt a human being, fix your affairs. In, if you've hurt an animal, make it up. I mean, repent by saving 10 animals because that animal doesn't have the power to forgive, so you're in trouble. But if you've hurt another human being, Go out of your way to address the injustice before you have to address it in the hereafter. Because if that human being doesn't forgive you, you're in trouble. I'm cutting to the chase in my journey with the Quran and I will demonstrate it to you that this is the truth about the way Allah deals with justice. No, you going to Hajj is not just going to wipe it out. Going to Umrah from one year to another is not going to just wipe it out. No. If you stole someone's money, you need to address it. If you've hurt someone's feelings, you need to address it. If you've beat someone, you need to address it. If you've injured someone, if you've betrayed someone, you need to address it. It's a paradigm shift. Muslims, we are about justice. And don't, don't lie to yourself. It's not just going to be wiped out and swept under a rug in the hereafter. You know, I, I remember when I was a child, I saw some, it was in Kuwait, and some Lady kids and like was torturing this poor dog. And of course I, I intervened to try to stop the torture. I got beaten up really badly. Ended up in the hospital. But they killed the poor dog. And to this day, 
to this day, I imagine this dog testifying against him in the hereafter. And this dog will not have the choice to forgive what they've done. So how is that going to be? To settle the bill. If you deal with animals, be very careful. If you deal with Allah's creation, be very careful. And if you deal with human beings, understand that Allah is not unjust. This is not Christianity where, oh, I just wipe out your slate clean. Like, you know, I read a lot of books about serial killers. And every serial killer finds Jesus after they're caught. And every serial killer that I've read about says, oh, I've accepted Jesus, I'm going to heaven. How about the, the 10 or 20 or 30 women you tortured and killed? Oh, well, Jesus now told me I'm going to heaven. Not Islam. Doesn't work that way. Not Islam. In Islam, each one you hurt will testify against you. And you're going to have to settle your bill. So better think very carefully before you hurt someone. Is it worth it? Are you going to be able to make it up? Are you going to be able to address the injustice and make it up? Because if you can't, then don't go there. Be very careful. This is the Islam that brought a new life to humanity. That was a revolution against the injustices of the Persian Empire and the Byzantine Empire and against the Catholic Church or the only church in Christianity that existed. The Islam of justice. This is the Islam. What Muslims have done with their religion is unthinkable. It's unreal. That's why you're faced with a revolution. And human beings were flocking to join Islam from every part of the globe. Like the Muslims, the poor Muslims of the Rohingyas, these were Muslims that were not, did not come from Bangladesh. These were Muslims who converted because of Muslim trade through commerce. Because the Muslim merchants were so ethical, their morals were so impressive. Their attitude towards justice made people convert. Not like Christian missionaries who say, you know, we'll, we'll feed you and educate your kids only if you accept Jesus. Now, Surah Al-Furqan shifts again to talk to the Prophet. Remember, the penultimate statement, the Quran is an anchor, and then it's moved to talking about the gossip that the Prophet is being confronted with, and the consequences to those who are spreading these character assassinations, these rumors. And then it shifts again to now addressing the Prophet 
in a logical way, but also in a very tender way. So, وَمَا أَتَسْتَنَّ قَبْلَكَ مِنْ الْمُرْسَلِينَ إِلَّا أَنَّهُمْ إِلَّا إِنَّهُمْ لَا يَأْكُلُونَ الطَّعَامَ وَيَمْشُونَ فِي الْأَسْوَاقِ وَاجْعَلْنَا بَعْضَكُمْ لِبَعْضٍ فِتْنَةً أَتَصْمِرُونَ وَكَانَ رَبُّكَ بَصِيرًا So it says, listen, every prophet that we've sent to human beings dwelled as a human being. We don't send angels to exemplify the message of the divine. So the message of the divine exemplified by what? By human being. This is relevant to what? To Christianity. That message of the divine is exemplified by the Son of God, who is divine. In Islam, no, no. God doesn't do that. God sends a human being to demonstrate to humanity what humanity must do. Not a superhuman being, not a superman, but a human being. And that human being, like Jesus, by the way, eats, goes to the bathroom, cleans himself, does all the things that human beings do. So, of course, you, you see the absurdity of then saying Jesus is defined. He was a human being, just like all other human beings. And Allah says, as, as Surah Al-Fuqam will, will say in a few verses, I'm jumping ahead just a little bit, that in fact, they say, well, why doesn't Allah send an angel? And Allah has two responses to this. He says, one, if we sent an angel walking next to him, you would still argue and still find a reason to disbelief. Because the ailment is inside of you. You're going to say, oh, that's not an angel. Oh, why does he need an angel to walk next to him? What? If he was a real prophet, he wouldn't need the protection of an angel. Oh, is this an angel or a demon? We're not sure. How do we know that's a real angel? So, the ailment is inside of you. You're going to argue. You're going to argue with whatever is presented to you. Second, you wouldn't be able to handle it if Allah sent beings from the world of ghaib, super things. If Allah sent angels, when are you going to see angels? In fact, as the theologians say, you're going to see angels on two occasions, upon your death and in the hereafter. And if you are smart, you are going to do everything to make your encounter with these angels a pleasant one. Because upon your death, when you see the angels, they're either going to terrify you or comfort you. It depends on what you've done in life. 
And in the hereafter, again, the angels are either going to terrify you or comfort you. And it depends on what you've done in life. So, you're saying, well, you know, why, if he was a real prophet, why don't, don't, don't we see angels? You're just playing mind games. Because in fact, even if you saw angels, you would either lose your mind, become mentally unstable, or you would argue it away. Say, maybe I'm hallucinating. Maybe what I saw is a demon. Maybe this is, a, I don't know, the soul of my dead mother. Maybe this is my father looking over me, after me. You know, you're going to come up with something. Because Allah knows you. And Allah knows the ailment in your heart. Now, notice here in ayah number 20, وَجَعَنَّا بَعْضَكُمْ لِبَعْضٍ فِتْنَةً أَتَصْبِرُونَ وَكَانَ رَبُّكَ بَصِيرًا So, Muhammad, now I am telling you, but I am, it, through you, I am sending a message to, to all people. The nature of your existence, that people are a fitna for each other. People are the source of annoyance, hardship, trials and tribulations, pain, and agony for each other. What is the agony that is confronting the Prophet Muhammad at this point? What is the agony that Surah Al-Furqan is talking about? The accusations of people, people talk, the gossip. So it's saying, Allah is Basir, Allah knows. But understand that the nature of existence that Allah created is that the hardships that you will suffer through comes from other human beings. It you know don't don't orient yourself towards the mythological belief that most of the hardships come from jinn or most of the hardships come from shaitan, or most of the hardships come from nature. No, most of the hardship comes from your fellow human beings, from people just like you. These people could be vicious. They could talk about you like the kuffar. They could tear you up, tear your reputation apart. They could invent all types of th criticisms and all types of things. They could make you suffer in numerous ways, but here, the Quranic challenge, atas birun. Are you going to persevere or are you going to fall apart? That's the test. Are you going to endure and persevere or are you going to crumble? Verse So then Allah says, well, you know, if, we, if they, we would have sent the angels, they would have still, through their arrogance, found a way to dismiss them. 
لقد استكبروا في انفسهم وعتوا عتوا كبيرا يوم يرون الملائكه لا بشرى يومئذ يومئذ للمجرمين ويقولون حجرا محجورا and indeed the day that they confront angels and as we said it will be upon their death and in the hereafter it's not going to be a pleasant meeting and what are they going to say hijran mahjura hijran mahjura is an interesting expression the meccans or the arabs generally when they would during the month of the the the, the, uh, the secret month the month the ashur al-quram when they would be around the Kaaba, if there is a feud in which someone wants to kill them, they would walk around the Kaaba and say, Hijran Mahjura, Hijran Mahjura, meaning, I am in the, under the protection of the sanctity of the Kaaba and the holy month, you can't kill me. And because pre-Islamic Arabs had a sense of honor, unlike today, uh, they would actually respect that, and they wouldn't kill you. Here, the Quran, it's fascinating. It's sort of needling them a, a bit, like it, it's poking them. It's saying, you know, I know you, you're going to react the way you culturally react now. You're going to start yelling, Hijran Mahjura, Hijran Mahjura, don't hurt me, don't hurt me. But it's not going to avail you. It's not going to help you. So you're going to resort to your emotional mechanisms that in which you try to feel better. But all things have been stripped from you. And now the truth of finality and the truth of accountability is before you. وَقَدِمْنَا إِلَى مَا عَمِلُوا مِنْ عَمَلٍ فَجْعَنَّاهُ هَبَاءً مَنْثُورًا This verse 23 Let's see the translation. And we shall turn to whatever deeds they did and we shall make such deeds as scattered, as scattered floating particles of dust. The Meccans would tell the Prophet well, you know, we do good things. We feed people that come to, to the Kaaba as pilgrims. We give money to the poor, some of them, obviously, not all of them. And we are good people. Why do we need to believe in your God? And this is direct response to one of the defensive mechanisms that they use with the Prophet Muhammad Well, why do we need to believe in Allah if we're good people? And Allah's response, you know what? It's not going to work. What you claim are your good deeds are going to be like nothing in the hereafter. This gave rise to a very prominent theological debate about 
the nature of justice in the hereafter vis-a-vis -vis good deeds that are not accompanied, are not motivated in the cause of Allah. So you are you 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 believe you're a good person, and you say what is the, what is the, the these days people say I'm agnostic I'm you know you know whatever. There is a huge philosophical debate. This is a huge issue, and and inshallah we'll take it in different ayat because it presents itself in a in a more developed way in other ayat in other surah, but. In Surah Al-Furqan, it presented us for the first time with this issue of do you need Allah to do good? And what if you do good but you, you don't pause on the issue of Allah? In other words, you marginalize the issue of God. And Surah Al-Furqan is often cited by those who say good deeds without Allah count for nothing. I'll tell you, that's not my position. My, my position, I mean, and we'll come to it, inshallah, in, in, in other surah, is good deeds without Allah are meaningless in the truth of things but are not meaningless in achieving the justice of things. I know that sounds philosophically complicated, so let's just postpone it. But in other words, put it simply in a more accessible language, that good deeds count for the purposes of when Allah is... is, is achieving the scales of justice. But still, good deeds without belief is a form of injustice in itself. Because kuf is an injustice. So you're still going to have to answer for that injustice, although your good deeds will count for you. But you still have a problem. Okay. This is verse 25. This is 26. We're start now addressing, as the Quran often does, the reality of the hereafter. And and in the hereafter, and look at the image, that in the here at that moment, those who have been unjust are zalim. And as we said, kufr itself is a form of injustice. But all zalim, all those who've committed injustice, they start. They bite their hands. That's a, in, 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 an image of fear. You know, bro, it's like you're terrified. At that point, you're confronted with terror, 
and you start having second thoughts about the way you've led your life. So, I, when you engage in this process of thinking about the life you've led, and you said, well, I wish I would have followed the prophet, so that's one. But I wish what, what else? يا ويلتي ليتني لم أتخذ فلانا خليلا. Here we get to another thing in Surah Al-Furqan that one of its very powerful messages that has already been alluded to. The sociological reality that most injustices are the result of some form of peer pressure or in social influence. Watch, be very careful about the company you, lead, you, you, you keep. The company you keep, the company you keep, and again I repeat, the company you keep can turn wives against husbands, can turn husbands against wives, can make you, you are going down a, night, a good path, a moral path, can make you hate the person that you loved, unlove the person that you should hate. The company you keep can do all things to you because Although we love to believe that we are autonomous human beings, in fact, we are pathetically non-autonomous. We are pathetically influenced by the company we keep. And the company you keep is your profession, is your community, is everything that exerts influence upon you. How many people in my life have I met? Oh, Ustaz, we're applying to law school. Pray for us as we are applying to law school. I meet them 10 years later and I look at their aura and it is horrible. Because now they've become lawyers. And they've worked in a law firm. And they're making a lot of money. And all their, you know, Oh, please pray for us, Allah, help us. I just want to go to law school to be to help serve Islam. I'm going to be a good mother. All of it is forgotten. All of it. That's the company you keep. How many Muslims? Oh, my God. If I wrote a book of all the people that I knew in youth groups and that at one point came to me, how you, I just wanted to know, you know, if, how is it applying to law school and what does it feel, you know, because they know I'm a law professor. And then I meet them years later and they are just, ah. Now they have the expensive car, the expensive home, they have a condo in LA, they, you know, and they're, you know, and all that stuff is so far from their mind. But it's not just lawyers. No, no, don't kid yourself. It's all professions. Because I can say the same about doctors. 
I knew so, I've not, I, I, العظيم, I do not exaggerate. I knew Egyptians who came to this country. They were studying for their boards. And when they were studying their boards, they were humble and they talked to you like, you know, oh, just pray for me, just please, please, just pray for me and just do the for me, I'm taking my board. Once they finish their residency and they're real doctors, they talk to you from the tip of their nose. As if they never asked you for a dua. And you come and tell them, donate for this or donate for this or something. Well, I will see. I will see. I'll come to you. I'm busy. I'm, I'm a doctor. I'm very busy. I'm on a call. I'm, you know. And they, oh my Lord. The company you keep. The company you keep. The vast majority of divorces that I've seen in my life, it was because of people, the company people keep. The vast majority of breakups is because of the company people keep. The vast majority of ugly, disgusting marriages have been because of the people company people keep. The company you keep. Look very carefully at who you spend time with, who you confide with, who you confide in, who gives you an opinion about your life. Because if the person who gives you an opinion about your life doesn't have Allah in their heart, then think again. Either don't get their opinion, insulate yourself, if you can, but most people can't. The vast majority can't. Or rethink very carefully about the company you keep. If you are the company you keep, if the influence upon you is your profession, humble yourself. Humble yourself. If you're a, 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 an associate or a partner in one of these big law firms, they're billing your time at $500, $600 an hour, and you feel yourself very hot stuff because your hour is $500. Time is money. I'm here to tell you that you're gonna, unless you're very careful, you might have a hard, very hard time in the hereafter. So cleanse yourself with the care and sadaqah, and humility. Go out of your way to help people pro bono. Make it known in your law firm that you do your salah. And force people respect you. And when you do that, people will know that they shouldn't talk to you about their affairs and how they go out with the secretary and the paralegal that they went out with, and all the stuff I've seen in law firms. I had a partner in the law firm that I worked with that liked to go to a strip club in one of the very expensive strip clubs in Washington, D.C. And of course, he's a partner, so all the associates that wanted to please him would go, whether 
their wives like the fact that they go to strip club or not. Everyone wants to appease the partner. He's a rainmaker. He brought in a lot of business. The only reason he didn't invite me to go to the strip club because he knew I prayed. So he thought I'm a loser. And he's not going to invite a loser to a strip club, but I was very happy. Alhamdulillah. Yes, I'm that loser. Don't invite me to your strip club. Because if you do, I'm going to have to tell you no to your face. And your ego can't take that. But you have to live a conscientious life. You can't let life just grab you. Now notice here, this is why this is Surah Al-Furqan. Are you getting it? This is why this is Surah, Surah the Criterion. The one that separates false from good, bad from good, falsehood from truth. Look at how it's now, look at how now, revisit the beginning of the surah. See how it's cleaning things for you. It's telling you, cut the BS. Cut all the, 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 the things you make up about excuses that make you avoid the truth of things. And watch out to your so look at your social context and cultural context. Whether in fact you are a moral human being and whether you truly live with Allah or you live with something else. Don't kid yourself that, oh, I just do good deeds and that's good enough. Think about the mythology that you tell yourself. All the stories that you tell yourself so you build up your character and build up your personality. Truly, this is becoming the Furqan. Truly, this is becoming Surat al-Furqan. Now, لَقَدْ أَضَلَّنِي عَنِ الذِّكْرِ بَعْدَ إِذْ جَاءَنِي وَكَانَ الشَّيْطَانُ لِلْإِنسَانِ خَذُولًا This is 29. وَقَالَ الرَّسُولُ يَا رَبِّ إِنَّ قَوْمِ اتَّخَذُوا هَذَا الْقُرْآنَ مَهْجُورًا So, first, it presents you with the image of who you will meet in the hereafter, and, and, and the hereafter you are thinking about the company you kept. And you are going to start thinking about, you know, the company that I kept either helped me maintain my zikr, or actually was an obstacle to maintaining my zikr. Either increased my piety or actually decreased my piety. And it dawns on you at that point that to the extent that the company you kept took dhikr away from you, it was from shaitan. The demonic was at play. And you say, oh my God, I lived in the company of the demonic, that was what my life was about? How horrible! I lived in the company of the demonic. It wasn't just me. It's a terrifying image that Surah Al-Furqan draws out for you. Then this unbelievably powerful and surprising Quranic move to then take you to the heart of the Prophet, 
and expose the agony of the Prophet to you. The hurt of the Prophet. What is the hurt of the Prophet? Not anything personal. The hurt of the Prophet that God, it's as if the Prophet is pleading with God, God, my people have abandoned the Quran. Now here is what Surah Al-Furqan is also doing for you. It is telling you this image, Ya Rabb, inna qawmi ittakhadu hadha al-Qur'ana mahjura. It's warning you about people that will come for generations that will do the same, will abandon the Qur'an. Now how about the people who want to uphold the Qur'an Surah Al-Furqan tells you they will be the subject of maligning, gossip, and backbiting. People will try to ignore everything they teach about the Quran and say things like, oh, they're enchanted, oh, they're just copying, there's nothing new, oh, oh the, 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 the garbage. But the Quran brings back to those who will follow the Sunnah of the Prophet, like the Prophet ﷺ, you have to hold steadfast. You can't let neither the company you keep influence you, nor the talk of people influence you. It's like the gossip and the opinions of people are irrelevant. To your moral mission and I'll show you verse 30 the prophet what can be a greater disaster and calamity than, than ignoring this Quran reverberating Echoing for generations to come, all those who are going to try to hold on to the Quran. This is the Sunnah of Allah. Every prophet will have enemies. It will never be different. But always remember. Everyone who's going to walk this path, that Allah should be enough for you. If you believe Allah is on your side, that Allah should be enough for you. Okay, then it takes you back to some more of the gossip of the Meccans. And you'll see the, 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 this this amazing sort of zoom in and zoom out as to the dynamics of what the Prophet is going through to teach you a very important moral lesson as we'll see. وَقَالَ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا لَوْ لَا نُزِّلَ عَلَيْهِ الْقُرْآنُ جُمْلَةً وَاحِدَةً كَذَلِكَ لِنُثَبِّتْ بِهِ فُؤَانَكُ وَرَتَّنَّاهُ تَرْتِيلًا They say 
Well, why doesn't just the Quran be revealed all in one swoop? You know, if this really from God, then why don't we have it all in just all come in one big swoop? Why does it come in stages? And Allah talks to the Prophet, not to them, as if what is what matters is the relationship between Allah and the Prophet, the truth. But whether they believe it or not is immaterial. That we send the Quran, means we send it in segments, in in carefully measured, carefully enunciated parts. That we do that to means to to strengthen your heart. But as scores of theologians noted, that in the increments with which the Quran is sent, the contextuality in which the Quran is sent are the moral lessons that educate human beings. Because without the context, you wouldn't get the full lesson of the Quran. And Surah Al-Furqan is an excellent example. Then, as the Quran often does, it goes a brief mention, not an extensive, but still, in typical Quranic style, a reference to history. Remember, in the Quran, the present, the future, and the past, history and the present and tomorrow, are always present in the Quran. Quran is constantly saying, don't think about your current moment without thinking about the past and thinking about the future. So, immediately, on 35 and 36, a reference to Moses. And we know that Moses and his brother Harun go through numerous trials and tribulations with the, with the community that believed in him. Not just the community that didn't believe in him, but even the community that believed in him, which will then will worship the cow, the, the heifer, and there will be all these things but those who defied Moses were ultimately destroyed. And the people of Nuh who were also destroyed. And Wa'ad wa Samud, again, and we've mentioned Ad wa Samud and we'll talk about them again later, who were also destroyed. I will pause with I was Ashab al Ras. This is verse 38. Ashab al-Rath, so here the translation says, and Ad Thamud and the dwellers of Ras and many generations in between. Well, okay, let, let's just stop for a second. Well, Ashab al-Rath, 
there is a big debate as to what the reference to Ashab al-Ras is. Ras means here a well. The people of a certain type of oasis. Maybe an oasis is better than a well. And it is not clear. There are so many different reports as to who these people were. Were they in Turkey? Were they in Syria? Were they in Yemen? Were they in Azerbaijan? Were they, there are numerous reports. But the best opinion, in my opinion, Aras means the people of a cultivated civilization. All people who have cultivated civilization but have done so without God created doomed civilizations. As I believe every secular civilization will be. It will be doomed by its paradoxes and its contradictions. Agree with me, not agree with me, it's up to you. And Allah says, and there are many generations, the, the same historical narrative. Human beings become full of themselves, they build a civilization, and they think that this material civilization is enough for them without the moral values of divinity. And it ultimately crumbles. And it ultimately comes down crashing on their heads. So each one of these, Allah engaged in Amsal is not just paradigms or examples or what is that ex uh, word, um, uh, similitudes or whatever, similitude. No, it, uh, means that with each Allah sent a clear message. And with each, ultimately, the result was a failure. So it's, it's telling Meccans, Note, don't make your life like those in the past. But continuing on, it's also, as Surah Al-Furqan is sending humanity a message. وَلَقَدْ أَتَوْا عَلَى قَرْيَةِ الَّتِي أُمْتِرَتْ مَطَرَ السَّوْءِ أَفَلَمْ يَكُونُوا يَرَوْنَاهَا بَلْ كَانُوا لَا يَرْجُونَ الْشُورَةِ This is verse 40. The village that was destroyed by um, rain is a reference to Sodom. And the reason that it says in verse 40, um, and they have passed by the town of Lot, yes, uh, on which the, the rain, the evil rain, is that the Meccans, when they used to do their trade, they would actually pass by the town of Sodom, coming and going. And Sodom was an abandoned and cursed area. And so they knew Sodom where people of Lot lived. And they, had, they would pass by it. But the Meccans, even before Islam, 
uh, ha their, their mythology would prevent them from entering it because they believe that it was a cursed area. So the Quran is reminding them, you know, you pass by one of these towns that met that fate. So, note verse 49, after, it, well, before, sorry, oh, no, sorry, 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 I, I jumped ahead, uh, I, I jumped ahead, sorry, uh, so, 39, uh, so it tells you in verse 40 about Sodom as well. So then it, it goes back to the Prophet and says, I know, Allah knows, that when they see you, they, they mock you and say, this, this is who God sent as a prophet? Their class, their their wealth, their pride makes them look down on you and say, and as the Quran elsewhere says, because Mecca says, well, why didn't Allah send someone who's wealthier or someone who's stronger or someone who's bigger? There's always, they're going to always point at something as, as, as a reason to look down on you. Oh, you know, too short, too thin too fat, too rich, too poor, whatever it is. But, note, they are freaking out because they say that you, with your talk, nearly could entice them to abandon their beliefs. Right? This is 41. That in kada liyudulluna an alihatina that you know, nearly enticing us to leave our gods. But who? Who are the real gods? 42 answers that for you. No, uh, sorry, 43. 43 answers this for you and says, no, you know who are their gods? Their gods are their egos. And understand, prophet of God, that those who reach the point where their gods are their egos, you can't reach them. What is the Furqan telling us? You might have idols, you might not have idols. It's immaterial. The real issue is your ego, your god. I've said before, 
is ultimately what counts in your decision making and in your life. My feelings? Well, I feel this way. If it is, then your ego is your God. Khalas. Or principles. Do you say, I live by principle and I force my feelings to follow my principles? Or do you say, I feel and I then have my principles follow my feelings? Because if it is your principles are following your feelings, your ego is your God. And if your ego is your God, you are an idol worshiper. You are a mushrik. I know this sounds harsh, but that's the truth. No matter how much you try to deny it, if you simply submit to your own ego, then you're in that category. That doesn't mean we should kill you. It doesn't mean we condemn you. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that I hate you. It just means that that's who you are. You're a mushrik. That's all. And that's something you're going to have to take up with God. Whatever, forever it's worth. And in my, as we will see, in my belief, that includes many, 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 many Muslims. Many Muslims are mushrikeen. Many Muslims are mushrikeen. They worship their ego. And Islam is decoration, is a badge, is culture, is comfort, is prestige. It's whatever it is. But the real Allah is their ego. And that's why when you look at, when you deal with them, you find no ethics, no morality. They lie, they cheat, they steal, they do everything that someone and you wonder, how are they Muslim? Well, the answer is, well, they're Muslim by name only. But they're a mushrik in truth. Because it's whatever is their ego wants, they justify it. And they find a way to justify it. And they're, by the way, and a lot of imams are also mushriks. All those imams that you go to, and they justify whatever the community wants, whatever the rich doctor who, who funds the Islamic center wants, or the Mufti of Egypt who justifies all the executions of Sisi and all the torture of innocent people. You don't think that's a mushrik? You know, inshallah, inshallah, I'm leaving this world soon. Take it or leave it from me. But I am telling you what I, after a journey, long journey with the Qur'an, a love journey, is what I firmly believe is the truth. It taught by, by the Furqan itself. There are a lot of Imams that in truth are mushriks. And a lot of people that pretend to be religious that are mushriks. 
something for their conscience between them and Allah. But if I'm going to testify the truth, I have to say the truth. If your morality is not guided by consciousness of Allah's presence, ever presence in every minute of your life, you're a mushrik. Okay. This extremely powerful Ar'ayta man ittakhadha ilahu أَفَأَنْتَ تَكُونُ عَلَيْهِ وَكِيلًا So it's talking to the Prophet. Prophet, get real. Speaking to Muhammad, get real. Do you think? I know that it hurts. I know that it pains you that they are ignoring the Quran. I know that it causes you agony that they are so unkind and irrational with you. But their problem is that they worship their ego and there's nothing you can do. Wow. A message that resonates for generations to come. And that is precisely why, and we're going to stop for Maghrib, but that is precisely why any Muslim preacher that comes to try to force people to do something is himself committing shirk. You can't force people to be Islamic or religious. You can't. If they worship your e their ego, you have to let them worship their ego. All you can do is advise and teach, and that's it. Yes, that's it. If they tell you get lost, we love being kuffar, we love doing what we do, We don't want to listen to you. All you can do is say, as we will see, is salam. Okay, fine. But to force people is shirk. Compulsion is shirk. Okay, we need to stop for Maghrib. Maghrib break. <laughs>